Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BZ141, Education and Boredom, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 251, October the 1st, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and Douglas Murray and myself are going to discuss education and boredom. Now that may seem like uh, a curious juxtaposition of subjects, but things have happened, particularly in the lifetime of Otto and myself. I recall reading someone years ago when I was young. Otto, do you remember Harry Leon Wilson, his novels? I'm not sure that I do. No, I don't think so. Well, uh, he wrote a number of uh, very popular novels, good stories. Mm -hmm. And in one of them, uh, which was filmed... Dorothy, what was the one about the English butler that a wealthy Western family brought out? Ruggles of Red Gap. Oh, yes. Ruggles of Red Gap. Yes, that was one of his better-known books. Yeah, that rings a bell. Well, Harry Leon Wilson wrote a book in which uh, this young man who had just begun to rise up into the big leagues in business in New York, was having dinner with a number of men who had it made. And one old man sitting next to him told him, he said, now you can have everything you want. And you will have melons out of season. They'll be uh, brought here especially for the kind of people you will now associate with. So there will be nothing you don't want that won't be supplied. There's one thing that's going to mark your life. Boredom. Because you're now in the world where there is no striving you simply maintain your status. That may or may not be a good definition of boredom, but I never heard of children being bored when I was a boy. We had endless games that we played. Some of them I've forgotten uh, the names of them and the rules because they've disappeared from the American scene. Games that uh, boys played making the uh, things with which they played, the sticks, the puck, and everything else was homemade. Does anybody remember Mumbly Peg? Yes, yes. That's something out of the remote past, Otto. And the idea of anyone being bored was incredible. 
There was something that belonged, a la Harry Leon Wilson, to the very upper crust, as did charge accounts, only the very wealthy had them. And there was not much entertainment in those days. The Saturday matinee, a lot of the uh, boys went to that, but uh, not regu that regularly. About the only thing any of the boys listened to on radio was uh, Amos and Andy, and everybody listened to that. Well, but, radio was something I wasn't allowed to touch. Yes, that you didn't touch it without permission. That was permission. only for your parents. Yes. But no one was bored. No one was bored. Well, no boys. Well, no boys were bored at any rate. And the interesting thing to me was that either in the fourth or fifth grade, all of the boys, I don't remember what the girls had to write on, was what I want to be when I grow up. You were expected to have some goal in mind. I think it was the fourth grade, and I said, since I was homesick at the time for the farm, we were in Detroit, that I wanted to be a farmer. And the teacher laughed. I was the best reader in the class, and she said, you'll never be a farmer. A year later, I wanted to be an astronomer. But everyone in the class had some objective. First year of junior high, we had to write a similar essay. Now, nobody knows what they're going to be even in the university. It's a big problem on the university level for the counselors to try to direct the students into some channel uh, for their future. So... Education today not only doesn't have the same direction, but it's accompanied by a great deal of boredom. Now, my cousin with whom I grew up, Ed, was two years older than I. He went through high school. In grade school, he read George Eliot and Charles Dickens and other things as a compulsory part of his course. It was a two-teacher school, grades one through eight. And he was thoroughly literate and fairly well read. And he had no aspiration to be anything other than he was a farmer. He served on various state and even national committees representing farm uh, groups. He was never bored. Life was always interesting. And yet today we have both a decline in the caliber of education so that we have, according to federal statistics, 76 million functional illiterates and we have a vast amount of boredom. That's why I feel education and boredom are so closely related. Otto, with that, do you want to make a general statement? Well, of course, as a boy, like you, I was a great reader. So 
being alone was no problem. No. My brother was six years younger and he might just as well have been somewhere else on the planet because the distance in years was too much. Uh, but whenever I went out of the house, we had lots of games. We, we uh, kept ourselves very busy. I was only bored on Sunday when I had to stay home. And that was only for brief parts of the afternoon. But there is something about being satiated with sensation. Uh, we have the, the kids today have got television, which they begin to watch before they can talk. All these images and all the babble and sound that goes with it. And then, of course, they have films and they have music, which is loud for the generation of their parents. They're surrounded with uh, sensations to such an extent from such an early age that I'm not sure that it doesn't do something destructive toward the imagination mm -hmm. because there's nothing that they can add to what they see. I remember that when I did reach the age where I could turn the radio on and listen to the radio, there was a great deal of your own imagination involved in what you heard. Mm -hmm. You visualized or thought you could visualize. You involuntarily began to visualize people associated with a certain timbre of voice and so forth. And the stories that were told compelled you to create a mental image. That's not present anymore. And... Uh, I'm not sure that any of the physiologists or psychologists have really paid any attention to what all this extra personal sensation is doing to the individual, but it might have something to do with the point you raise about boredom among children. Not to say, of course, that the kind of schools and teachers they go to are inherently boring because they're trying to tell them things which make your stomach turn over because they're so obviously impersonal and false. Yes. They're telling you, they're telling the kids that they have to like everybody. And that, of course, means that they can't even be human beings because you have a perfect God-given right to like or dislike whatever. Mm -hmm. It comes involuntarily. They're telling them all sorts of things which turn them off. And I noticed when my daughter was sent to public school when we moved out here from Kentucky, within a few months, within about three months, I began to see the light go down. She began to diminish right before my eyes. I had to take her out of that and put her in a private school. They do something. They're doing something to kids in the schools we have today that is very bad. Yes. And nobody seems to be concerned about it. They're only concerned about the grades and the examinations. But when you turn the light off for all these millions of people, you're doing something worse than betraying their educational hopes. You're doing something damaging. Douglas? Well... Looking at uh, my own experience raising my own two sons, we lived down in the San Francisco Bay Area, and one of the things that I was struck by was uh, when the kids were in grade school, they were both smart, good readers, and they were taken from the rest of the group and put into what the school called a mentally gifted minor program. 
Now, we didn't consider that our kids were mentally gifted minors. They were simply convinced that it was necessary for them to make a real effort. Uh, we didn't encourage them to think of themselves as different. But we had school psychologists called us in and told us that our kids were going to be social misfits uh, because they read, uh, they were able to give hour-long dissertations on astronomy on various subjects that they happened to be interested in at the time. And uh, kids go through phases, as you mentioned before, mm -hmm. of interest in astronomy, interest in this, that, and the other, and they latch on to something and they'll stick with it for a while until they uh, want to move on to a different subject. Our kids were no different. But the idea of taking the kids out of the main group and holding them up as some kind of a pace horse mm -hmm. uh, made them feel like they were a bug on the head of a pin. And I could see immediately that they wanted to hunch down in their chairs mm -hmm. and uh, uh, because there was peer pressure there, because they were, quotes, different. Mm -hmm. And who, who were they going to be misfitting with? <laughs> it's it's uh, <clears throat> misfitting probably with the school administrators uh, because they wanted everybody to be at the same level. You know, there's a mindset. I've heard school administrators use the term in, in describing the school as a plant, like a factory, like a mm -hmm. manufacturing concern where they take these blobs of yes. protoplasm right. in and they... Form them like uh, uh, lumps of clay. Turn out widgets. Michael Widget. Exactly. Widget. And uh, they all come out knowing the same, which is very little, and uh, unable to think for themselves, and very little, if any, problem-solving ability. And yet these same administrators get up in front of audiences and say, we don't have kids that can solve problems anymore. And yet they don't seem to be able to see the process where they're destroying this ability. Well, then, Russ and I, if we had been born 50 years later, or whatever, <laughs> maybe late, more than that, uh, would not have done so well in these schools. No. Mm -hmm. no. Well, there's a different uh, uh, thing going. Uh, you've got kids who are now spectators instead of participants yes. in life. Uh, they're encouraged to be spectators, to sit in front of television sets, to go to um, uh, sports events. That they, they're not encouraged to participate because they might hurt themselves, but they're encouraged to go to sports events as a spectator. And uh, this starts very early on, and the message is implanted very early. Well, I think I've told this story before, but uh, it's such a telling story, I think it bears repeating. One of the closest friends I had in my, well, the closest friends I had in my university days were Bert and Dorothy Eves, a young couple. Uh, he became one of the co-inventors of naval radar. But uh, in the 50s, when they were living on the peninsula, Dorothy had a call from the school asking her to go there because there was a problem with regard to her son, Daniel. He was clearly a social deviate. 
and she all but fell apart as she hung up and thought maybe I should have asked for more and she said it's a miracle that she got to the school without an accident she was shaking so and she went to the principal's office and what did Daniel's social deviate status come from well during recess Daniel who was a very healthy normal all-american boy would take a book and sit on a bench rather than join in the play because he was more interested in the story than in fooling around on the playground. Of course, Dorothy exploded over that and really ticked off the counselor and the principal. But uh, that's the kind of attitude that uh, began in the 50s and now governs the schools. And so we're turning out uh, student rebels in the 60s who all dressed alike, talked alike, and thought they were nonconformists. And in some way, ever since then, nonconformity has become a student uh, creed and of the most rigid sort of conformity. It's group nonconformity. Yes, mm -hmm. nonconformity to their parents' will. Uh, that's a big point. Yes. That's a big point. To everything else except that. Yes. Now, I'm sure that boredom has occurred at other times in history, but looking back, the clear-cut, the very obvious example was Rome. The Roman writers, the degenerate writers, were all bored people. They were people who were experimenting with every kind of sex, including homosexuality, who left nothing outside the range of human experience that they didn't toy with, and they were continually bored and whining and complaining. Well, this has been true since Rome and before Rome on the top. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is boredom on the bottom. Yes. And that's something entirely different. Yes. Uh, a, a society can endure ridiculous behavior on the top because the bottom supports the whole thing. The infrastructure continues, life goes on. But ordinary people who have two things, they have very busy lives and very boring lives. Going back to the, the question of how much do you retain from your education? Now, for reasons that I've never been able to understand, you can remember what you read. Yes, I You can remember do. what you read. Sometimes you can remember it explicitly. Mm -hmm. and But you can't remember a film explicitly. You can remember snatches and a few pieces of dialogue but and the overall impression, but you can't remember the movie. And you can't remember... Uh, some people might be able to remember music. I've met a few people who could, could hear a tune once and knew it immediately, but... Generally speaking, you have to hear it a good good number of times. What I'm saying is that 
the audiovisual entertainment, uh, audiovisual educational method that's being used today does not leave anything permanent in the mind of the kids. They're coming out, and they're coming out empty. Mm-hmm. And they're turned off on the reading, as I was turned off for a great many years on poetry as a boy. They spent six months on one little short poem when I was a boy, and I was ready to murder the teacher before, if she didn't stop talking about it. Every word had to be analyzed, and it was an obvious word. didn't need to be analyzed. Well, they're doing that on a larger scale with reading across the board. They're making reading a punishment. I noticed my daughter brought home enormous amount of homework from every student and every teacher in every course. Made work. By making work, the teacher elevated what he was pretending to teach. But most of the work was nonsensical work. It was detailed stuff. I didn't have that sort of homework, and neither did you. I could have. I handled my homework in an hour or so an evening, if that much. No problem. Let me ask you, since both you men are a generation ahead of me, can you remember uh, in your early years this thrill-seeking syndrome of people jumping over gorges on bungee cords, seeing how close they can come to the rocks and not smash themselves, uh, or people jumping out of airplanes in uh, parachutes just for fun? Yes, on the top. Out of a a perfectly good airplane? On the top. Uh, If you had a great deal of money, if you were raised to great wealth, and I've known boys, I knew boys that did, and young men who did, By the time you're fairly uh, advanced in your teens, you'll have experienced all sorts of things. And uh, then you look for something else. And in the final analysis, if you can get everything you need and everything you want, the only thing that remains is danger. So therefore, the wealthy in Venezuela would hunt jaguar with Indians. The Indians would beat the jaguar to you, and you were to catch the jaguar on a spear, on a spear, not with a gun. That was considered cowardly. And I remember that John Shaheen, who was in the OSS, told me that there were several types of people in the OSS in World War II. There were the uh, cryptograph types, the one who could solve puzzles, and the technicians, eggheads, really. Then there were the... uh, the ones who had actual experience in espionage and double-dealing, the communists, there were a good number of those. And then there were the wealthy, like John Ringling North and others. I remember there was one in the Biddle family who, uh, who was an expert in hand-to-hand combat. He was a man in his 60s, and they didn't believe him, so they surrounded him with some young Marines, and he put them all on the floor in just a few seconds, a few minutes. And so they put him in. So danger, yes. But what you're talking about is middle-class kids who are living the way wealthy people lived a generation, two generations ago. That was the same boredom. Well, I can recall that the kind of thing that excited kids was not something that was a media event which you may recall somebody going over the Niagara Falls in a barrel 
I don't remember whether he lived or died. Oh, a number of them did, yes. Yes. Uh, That didn't interest the kids. Seeing Babe Ruth hit a home run did. Yes. And uh, Lindbergh, of course, being the first to fly across the Atlantic. That was exciting. Everybody read his book, We. The only time newspaper was allowed in my classroom was the morning after he landed in Paris. And mm-hmm. the, the teacher had newspapers. Yeah, but these men were heroes oh, yeah, in yes. their own time. Oh, very Today's right. generation has no heroes except anti-heroes. We had heroes, and it was very important. And, of course, we were all going to be heroes, too. <laughs> Well, the whole uh, of the educational pattern was this in my day and in the schools I attended. Every classroom had its own library. You could bring your own books, put your name in them. We didn't and there was that. there was a period uh, in each day when you could go and take a book off the shelf read it during that period and take it home overnight. And no one ever failed to bring the the book back. Never uh, did happen. So we were all encouraged to read and expected to read. Uh, These were uh, boys' books, girls' books. Uh, They were all the way from Tom Swift to... Louisa M. Alcott and that sort of thing. Peck's Bad Boy and Peck's that Bad sort Boy of thing. in your school. Oh, oh yes, I found that on my own. I was delighted with it. It's been banned for years. <laughs> uh, so uh, there was a great deal of that, and I was privileged in that both in grade school and in high school. I had two men who taught poetry and taught it powerfully. I can still recall the one tall, lanky man in grade school reciting Shakespeare by the page. And uh, when there would be a Shakespeare play to see, groups of us from the classroom would go with him so that uh, out of a class of 45, maybe 25 or 30 would go of a, on a single occasion, different ones and different occasions. And uh, we relished it. In fact, uh, I recall one man whom we went to see who dramatized uh, Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. He was the only actor. Yeah. Played all the parts. And to this day, I can recall vividly everything. I can almost see him being executed as he put his head on an imaginary block. So that uh, I was very privileged in that regard. And in high school, I had another teacher who's still living, 90 years old, and a good friend. So I learned to relish poetry from them, as well as reading in general. Well, 
I didn't. <laughs> I had to pick it up later. Yes. However, I did see a lot of theater when I was young. Mm -hmm. But going back to the boredom, according to the uh, literature of the period, there was general boredom in Europe before World War One. Yes. Especially, say, from 1880 or so until 1914. So the war was greeted with jubilation by the young men and young women and so forth of England, Germany, France, Italy, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. They had lived such button-down lives, such regulated lives, that they thought of the war as a great adventure. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, many veterans say the same thing, that that was the high point in their life. In the sunset of their life, they will look back to their war experience and everything else pales by comparison to that. Well, I wanted to say that uh, I think that reading leaves a deeper impression on the mind, uh, following up Otto's previous remark, and I think it has something to do with the way the brain functions physiologically. We've heard the, the term used uh, in describing the visual arts, like television and films, as being, quotes, chewing gum for the mind. In other words, it's just a pastime. It's not something that you really involve yourself in and become a part of, whereas you become involved in a book and you, you live in that book uh, for the period of time that you're reading. And I think it has something to do with the fact that more faculties in the brain are involved in creating your own pictures in the mind. In other words, your imagination when you're reading a book. And this is the reason that it leaves a deeper impression. Well, there's participation. But I noticed along the same lines, or similar lines, that young people today don't seem to have the expressiveness mm -hmm. that our generation had. I, I look at them and I smile and I say hello, and they give me a dead face, and very often they don't reply. And this is true of young clerks in the stores. They don't say thank you. They don't say anything. They are absolutely wooden. Mm -hmm. That deadness came out last week in this city of 11,000 in Colorado, near Denver, a well-to-do community, when five high school students took exception to seeing a young soldier newly home, father of twins, a year old, and they beat him to death while 30 other high school students watched. What had he done? Nothing. They just decided they didn't like the looks of his uniform, a handsome young fellow, and beat him to death. And their only excuse was they were bored. All of them were bored. And this was some excitement. This is why boredom is dangerous and education today is productive of boredom because it leads to a feeling of uh, well they're dead and they can kill without feeling anything well of course that's in part a product of the Roman game thing Mm -hmm. where they see so many uh, imitation, clever imitation murders and so much sadism and so forth, they reach the point where 
a, a, an actual person is no more than a three-dimensional image. Mm -hmm. Of course, the, the whole thing of uh, adolescent males going berserk is as old as the Bible. Who was it? Uh, one of the prophets who was pursued by such a band and then mm -hmm. the Lord sent the bears after him. Yes. So even then, this has been, has been known throughout the world, throughout history, that the most dangerous of all uh, members of the population are young males. And that was be shortly before the fall of Israel. So it's a sign of the end. Well, it's crime is always a sign of a weak government and a weak society, especially brutal, sadistic crimes. So this, mm -hmm. these mark the Renaissance. Yes. Yes. But going back to the boredom before World War One. Now, the post-Victorian period is an interesting period, or not—I wouldn't say post—the late Victorian period because they had lost their faith, but they had not lost the facade of the faith. Mm -hmm. So the rules were still in place, but the essence was gone. Yes. And of course, there's nothing more miserable than to obey the rules when you don't believe in them. I don't care what kind of rules. Yes. If you don't believe in them, then it's real torture. I recall in the mid-30s a girl at the university telling me she had gone home and told her grandmother, who was English, what they had been told in class, in a history class, about the characteristics of the Victorian era. And she laughed. She said, child, that's when I grew up. And she went on to say that the 30s were a very moral era compared to the Victorian. She said people maintained a facade of morality and Christianity, but there is more real Christianity and morality today than there was then. That was in the 30s. That was in the 30s and in San Francisco. So it takes adversity to bring that kind of behavior back. Yeah. Well, that's true of all of us individually. I mean, when times are tough, we behave better. Yes, you have to. But the, the World War One collapse, it was a spiritual collapse before there was a physical collapse. We had a delayed reaction to it, briefly in the 20s, but it was not until after World War II that we began to experience what uh, Douglas said characterized uh, Europe uh, before World War I. What the boredom. Boredom. I just said it. Oh, you said it, yes. Well, you both said it, I think, because... Uh, Douglas mentioned that the soldiers were... The soldiers were talking about the war being the high point of their lives. Yes. Now, the interesting thing is that the uh, first word, perhaps, to express this boredom came from France. Anoui. E-N-N-U-I. Well, we used it. Uh, like we adopted the word malaise. Yes. 
and ennui also because it wasn't a common condition here. Yes. Now, I will admit that I'm not at all, I don't at all understand what happened to the United States after World War II. We won the war. Mm. And we did not suffer so much in the war as any other country. Yugoslavia lost two million people. We did not have the kind of a terrible war. Only a few, let's put it that way, a minority of the American troops had a terrible war. Most terrible war we had were the troops in the Pacific. And they've never been fully credited for this terrible experience that they had. And it was a ghastly war against the Japanese. And afterwards, the country, uh, instead of experiencing a big depression, there was a couple of tough years in the late 40s, but the 50s were a good generation and a good decade. I do not understand. Uh, A friend of mine told me that the Dick Van Dyke show has been revived on television and that she saw the first revival of it last night, cable television. And she said she enjoyed it. It was funny. The people were well-dressed and good-looking and handsome, and the dialogue was, was amusing. And that after it was finished, she almost wept because she compared it with the condition of this country today. Will the filth, mm-hmm. these obscene, blasphemous individuals who are paraded as comedians and with this horrible entertainment that we have today, and she said she couldn't. In 30 years, how have we fallen? Yes. Well, of course, a lot of that can be laid at the door of John Dewey and progressive education. And uh, Eugen Rosenstock-Husey, in his book, The Christian Future, declared that uh, John Dewey represented the Chinification of the United States, reducing everything to relative terms. Just as uh, in China, the yin-yang philosophy says that there is no truth, that all things are relative, and it's a question of what is fitting at a particular point. So Dewey's pragmatism set forth the same philosophy, and that is why Dewey was so immensely popular when he went to lecture in the 20s in China. And the Chinese found his thinking uh, a vindication of their own uh, basic uh, premises. So uh, Deweyism reduced everything to relative standards. Well, of course, what impresses me is much wider than the educational establishment. When I was a boy, my teachers didn't have total control over my mind. I didn't always respect them, and I didn't always agree with what they told me. For one thing, I did a great deal of reading outside the school. For another thing, my family background was unique, and we came from a broader perspective than most of the teachers. Teachers, after all, usually came from uh, a working-class group who considered white-collar teaching a step up 
and they, outside of their subjects, there really wasn't much learned from them. But in any event, I didn't sit there like some empty vessel waiting to be filled with wisdom. And uh, I don't believe that even today they create children who accept everything they're told in the school. You see them, as a matter of fact, with expressions of contempt and rebellion, disorderly behavior of a sort that you and I never experienced, never dreamed would happen. But I'm reminded of Dickens's description of a young schoolmaster that Steerforth led the boys into rebelling against. Remember that? Yes. In, in uh, David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I read it, I was shocked to think that boys would behave that way <laughs> to the teacher. Yeah. Because although I didn't always respect the teacher, I always behaved politely. Yeah. On your remark regarding Dewey's trainification, I think there's another thread there that goes through the Japanese culture. They have a saying that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, and we seem to have that working here in the United States education because no one now is allowed to fail, even if they are failing. They're not even allowed that luxury of starting over again, of knowing where the point of beginning is to get up off the floor and start over again. And no one is allowed to really excel, to stand up above the crowd. But they're disorderly. They're they're disorderly. There's nothing else to do when they're kept in that narrow channel. So they must be bored. Exactly. Well, if you've looked at any modern textbooks, you can understand why they're bored. The modern textbook has illustrations and the use of color uh, such as we never saw. But its contents are the most boring things imaginable. To a literary mind. Mm -hmm. Now, apparently in the college level, and perhaps also the high school, I don't know, those that go into the hard sciences have a different experience. The scientific education is uh, a specialized education. Mm -hmm. So they're immediately cut off from everything else and they're taught the scientific paradigm. And within that paradigm, they stay for the rest of their career, their working career. They don't have to read books. They don't have to understand the history of science because it's not taught to them. They're taught only the conclusions of science, as though they, bing, 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 this, this is it, this is the state of the art. And they come out apolitical, because they're unlearned in uh, all that area. They have no loyalty to the corporation, I notice. They're only loyal to, to the particular sub-specialty that they're involved in. But I notice with interest that a great many of the graduates are flocking into the churches, into the uh, Reformed churches in particular, because they're looking for something that science doesn't give them. Now, we don't see uh, or read, at least, about disorders in the scientific schools and colleges. It's only in the humanities. Well, we want to answer that age-old question, like Peggy Lee's uh, popular song is that all there is you know they're beginning to ask themselves the question is this all there is and they're looking for another answer that's the reason they're going into the church exactly but it's also the reason that they're tractable mm-hmm. because they're learning something that is immediately and specifically useful 
in the days of the early church, the thing that drew people into the church was getting married and getting pregnant. And the young mother would immediately begin to say to herself, what a horrible and depraved world to bring up a child in. She would look around at the homosexuals, the transvestites, and so on, and she would tell her husband, there's got to be something better. And they would get involved in a Bible study group. And uh, this was one of the key factors. Suddenly, meaning was all important for them. The recreation of the family. Yes. This decline in reading, I think, started back in the 50s. I know when I was, I started high school about 1950, and even during grade school, during World War II, visual arts was the big buzzword in the public school system in San Francisco. And uh, everybody thought it was just a way for the teacher to go in the back of the class and go to sleep <laughs> while the class was watching the film. Uh, but I think that was the point in my lifetime where kids became spectators instead of participants. Instead of having discussion groups, yes. instead of having uh, debating groups, there were no such things from that period of time on in the public schools. That brings up an interesting point. When I was in high school in a farm town, one of the big things was the debating uh, group, the do debating they, team. Do they still have them? I don't think so. If they do, it's a relatively minor thing. It used to be a big thing. It used to be a big thing, and to be on the debating team was a matter of prestige on campus. Sure. And uh, you had more prestige if you were a good debater than if you were a top baseball or football player. Well, that wasn't true of the high school I went to. <laughs> well, it was because the farm families were all immigrants. There were only two or three families I knew of in the entire Kingsburg area where English was the language spoken at home. And so, to be so literate that you could marshal arguments come up with uh, responses spontaneously was highly prized and it was respected. Well, obviously it was an idyllic city, an idyllic town. No, it was just the special condition because everybody wanted the, their children to get ahead in a particular way, whereas in a more American community they wouldn't have felt the same way. How do you know? You didn't grow up in a typical American community. Well, I was in Detroit also part of the time in the 20s. But debating uh, wasn't anything. Well, it was a big thing in the high school I went to, but it wasn't as big as football and baseball. Uh -huh. Well, uh, I played uh, football, tried to play baseball, and I was on the debating uh, team as a second stringer. But that was very big then, very big. 
Well, our local high school, you take a look at the uh, school paper, and 99% of it is devoted to sports. About half of it's football, and the rest of it's the other sports. The kids who excel in uh, academically, uh, they're given no space at all. Of course, you know, at the end of the semester, they'll say, well, we have a certain number of kids that have a 4.0 grade point average, but they don't say what the subjects were, uh, what they're going to do when they get out of school, whether or not they're going to go to college. Uh, there's no background, there's no uh, credit given them for having achieved academically. They sort of hold them out as uh, uh, Cupid all that, yes, we can produce people that uh, can get a 4.0 grade point average, but uh, our, really our main interest, the message in the school paper, is that really our main interest is producing uh, potential candidates for professional football teams. Well, well high school that I went to had a, a terrible habit of putting on the bulletin board everybody's scores, everybody's grades. And there was an honor roll, and quite considerable quite considerable honors were given to those who had the highest grades. Mm -hmm. So yeah. obviously all the schools have slid in that respect. Well, they published them in the local newspapers, the grade point averages, but it's not in the school paper, and there's a difference. In other words, the, the appreciation for academic excellence is not among the peers. It's a community... Uh, Achievement. Oh, well, that's a different subject. As to what the other boys thought, that's entirely different. Uh, Douglas, uh, this may still have been true in your day, but in the mid-30s, when I was going to Berkeley and living in San Francisco, uh, there were sizable colonies in San Francisco, Irish and Italian. And if you had a particular grade point average, you went to Lowell High School. I remember that. And it was a great matter of pride with the various ethnic groups how many boys and girls they had in Lowell High School. And the various high schools were all rated in terms of their academic standards. So you worked, and your parents put pressure on you if you came from one of these minority groups to make it to Lowell. Mm -hmm. So it lasted even to the early fifties. Uh, I know I asked somebody about it uh, in from San Francisco mm -hmm. a while back, and they looked at me blankly. Well, it was still there uh, because, uh, and of course. Uh, University of California, that was the next goal, yes. the next rung up the ladder. And I grew up in San Francisco, which is probably one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. And uh, you could, you could, you got that message when you went to someone's house and they had children in school, uh, you didn't waste that kid's time. In other words, uh, they weren't if you were over there, weren't over there to play, you were there to, to do homework or to do studies. And uh, it was very apparent that the parents were putting pressure on the kids to make it either into Lowell or with the idea in the future of going on to the University of California, but that's gone now. 
Well, in those days, if you were a Berkeley or a Stanford student, it was a little more important to say, I came from Lowell. Oh, yes. Just as at Harvard, if you were from the Boston Latin School, that meant you were uh, the cream of the cream. Well, you were a shoe-in to get into Cal because the final exam, for instance, in English at Lowell was the, the Subject A entrance exam to University of California. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have to take the Subject A uh, English exam when you applied to go to Cal. You were just accepted automatically. They gave you credit for it. Well, New York has never been known as a non-competitive place. I don't think there's a city in the country that is any more competitive than New York. And when I did go to school there, the regents' examinations yes. were automatic college acceptance anywhere in the country. Yes, they were highly regarded. I passed them when I was 13. Mm -hmm. From coast to coast, the regents' examinations of New York State were highly regarded. So... But all that sort of standard is gone now in yes, every city and Appa state. Apparently it's gone. Uh, but we keep reading about the Asian students working hard, getting in. And I think the first generation of immigrants worked the hardest. Yes. After that, there's no need to work that hard. So that their children don't. I mean, it's something like De Young, when he was running Goodyear, he said uh, he, his father was a hod carrier. Uh, he was a hod carrier. His father was a, was a drunken superintendent. And De Young worked his way up and became CEO of Goodyear. And he said he was worried about his son because his son didn't seem to show the same kind of drive. I said, well, he had a different father. Mm -hmm. Very well put. Very well put. There was such a pride in San Francisco among the ethnic groups if their son or daughter made it to Lowell. But there was a need. Mm -hmm. There was a crying need, and the, the children filled the need yes. because the children felt the need. And uh, it really is not quite an accurate comparison or a fair comparison to compare it with families that have been better circumstances for a longer period. However, the whole point of education has changed. Then your child went to school because you expected him to get ahead in life. Now he goes to school automatically and not much attention is paid as to whether or not he does his homework. Well, that I don't know anything about. I don't know what these young parents today do, I, I, uh, they themselves not having much of an education, although in many cases they've even got graduate degrees. Yes. You run into this paradox of an individual who has been exposed to education for a long period of time, gone to fairly prestigious schools and who can't carry on a conversation. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, when you interview them in specifics of their work, they very often are very intelligent. Yes. Yeah, but you've got engineers who can't write a report. Yes. They have to have someone assigned to them specifically to tell the management what they're accomplishing with the money that they're spending. 
So what we're really talking about is literacy. Yes. Well, today, Christian schools find that as fifth, sixth, seventh graders come to them, they are illiterate. How do they get to the seventh grade? Automatically. Automatically. And it takes that long for the parents to find out. Now, I don't believe any uh, foreign family or any American family 50 and 75 years ago would have... No, uh, they parents, would have known. My parents were on me like a couple of hornets. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, with Otto's parents on him like a couple of hornets, <laughs> we'll uh, have to conclude this particular session on education and boredom. Thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.